to the main message portion of our service. And as you've noticed, we are going to have communion again. We have it on a monthly basis. So today is the day that we're going to be able to come to the Lord's table to uh, take the bread and the wine or grape juice, whichever you choose, and celebrate our salvation in Jesus Christ. But let's start with prayer now. Lord, once again, as we open our Bibles, there's a message that you want us all to hear and to understand today. So we just pray that the Holy Spirit be here in a powerful way to open our minds and our hearts to take in what you've prepared. And as we partake of the communion ceremony today, we just pray your special blessing on each of us and on the congregation as a whole, that you bring us together in unity and peace and that we're able to come closer to you today by doing this. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Well, we're going to turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. And as I think most all of you know, this is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. And I didn't know that uh, our church president, Greg Williams, was going to talk about the church at Corinth a little bit. He gave you a little bit of background information that uh, the church at Corinth was a metropolitan church. Corinth was a, a crossroads of the Roman Empire at that time. And uh, unfortunately, with that culture that surrounded the church in Corinth, there were a lot of problems with the church there. And the book of 1 Corinthians is a very corrective letter written by Paul, trying to clear up a lot of problems that were going on in the church at that time. And interestingly enough, one of the main problems had to do with the way that church was celebrating the communion service. So we're going to read a little bit about that today. And, uh, you know, my, one of my jobs as a pastor, as we have the communion service, is to make sure we as a congregation partake of it in the right way. It's not just kind of a little pre prelude to our main meal after services. It's not the appetizer to the meal that's going to be served to us a little bit later on by the ladies here. It's a very special meal. Uh, it's the meal that Jesus Christ himself instituted on the night before his crucifixion, as we all know. He gathered with the apostles at the Last Supper and instituted the bread and the wine, the bread representing his broken body that would take place the next day, and the wine or the grape juice representing his shed blood. And that was all about his sacrifice for our sins and the sins of the world. So we need to remember what it's all about so that we take it with reverence. And that's what Paul is addressing here as he writes to the church at Corinth. He describes a little bit about what was going on at their communion service. And let's read here, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. 
So Paul had heard reports back about what the service was like. And I guess back in those days, especially in the church at Corinth, they had a meal at their service, and the communion was a part of that general meal. <coughs> and I guess it was kind of like a uh, potluck, but their potluck ended up being that each family ate the food that they brought in personally. So they didn't share with everybody else. <coughs> I'm going to need another throat lozenge here. <coughs> Got a little tickle. Thank you. So when we have a potluck, we just put all the food <coughs> on, the, on the table and everybody can choose whatever they like. It wasn't the case here. People brought their food in <coughs> and ate it themselves. They personally ate whatever they brought in. So communion is supposed to be a symbol of unity and it was intended to produce unity in the church at Corinth, but it was producing disunity. And the reason for that was that the Corinthians were practicing the common banquet etiquette of the Roman Empire in which they lived. <coughs> so at a common banquet in the Roman Empire, you'd have different cliques, different groups of people the rich people would sit in one location and they would all enjoy the fine things that they brought in. The top-notch food, the finest wine, and they would gather together as the rich people of the group and they would just enjoy that overeating and overdrinking. The middle-class people that were in the church had far less the poor people who came to that church had nothing. So can you imagine that kind of a setting for a meal and the communion service that went along with it? It was causing division. People were sinning by overeating and overdrinking, and the poor people could just stand by and actually do nothing because they had nothing to eat. But you know what? The death of Jesus, symbolized by the bread and wine at the communion service, forced everyone to stand on equal footing. That's what we do when we come here today. You know, we have people from different ethnic backgrounds, different income levels, different education levels, different race, different nationality, whatever the case may be. But when we come together here to have the communion service, this puts us all on equal footing. There's no space here for division. There's no space here for different cliques where you got one group over here and one group over there. We all come to the table in unity because when we take the communion service, we're all equal. Everything else is put aside. Your background, your income, none of that matters here. So from wherever you're called to God's church, when we come to the communion table, we're all equal. Amen. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, hold your place here and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. What about us is all equal? Romans chapter 3, and in verse 23. Here's how we're all equal. 
It says here, Romans 3, verse 23, for all, everybody in the room here, no matter what our background is, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So one thing that unifies us here today is that we're all sinners, right? We all are. So we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But notice verse 24. We are also justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. So instead of coming together as a big group of people, and focusing in on what's different among us, nationality, race, income level, and so on, we come here as Christians and focus on what we all have in common. We're all sinners, and we have all been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. That's what we focus on. That's what brings unity. When you focus on other things, and you know what, what else could be focused on today is your political party. Boy, that's something that really separates people in our society today, isn't it? We don't discuss that. That's not the issue here. Amen. Yeah, you're free to belong to whatever political party you want and to vote for whomever you want. But you know what? When we come here together as believers, we rise above that. Instead of focusing on what separates us, we focus on what we have in common, what unifies us. And that is that we are followers of Jesus Christ and we have been saved through his sacrifice on the cross. We're all sinners who need a savior and God has provided that savior for us in his son Jesus. Now notice something else in Galatians 3 and verse 28. Galatians 3 and verse 28. Again, something else that unifies us and puts us all on an equal footing with each other. Galatians 3 and verse 28. He says here, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So no matter what our background is, no matter what in the eyes of the world may separate us one from another, we put that totally aside and we come together as a spiritual family, as children of God, to celebrate our salvation in Jesus Christ. So when we go back to the table, that's one of the things we do. We celebrate the fact that we are all under now the new covenant. Because the communion service is a covenant meal. You know, when Jesus instituted it at the Last Supper, he passed the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And that is the covenant of grace. That is the covenant of salvation. We make an agreement with God, if you will, because that's what a covenant represents, an agreement between two parties. Now, what we do is we come to God and say, Father, we're sinners. We need help. We need a savior, and God provides that savior in his son, Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross. So we dedicate our lives now to God, and in turn, he saves us through his grace and through his mercy. And not only 
brings about the forgiveness of our sin, but also brings about eternal life with him forever, which we will live and enjoy in the future. But in a sense, we're already participating in that by being children of God now, by being forgiven now, by being extended the righteousness of Jesus Christ now, we're already in a sense in the kingdom of God and looking forward to that life with God now extending forever. So that is our destiny. So like I said, the problem was the people were coming in an unworthy manner to the communion service. Can you imagine somebody about to take the bread and the wine and being so stuffed that they can hardly get out of their seat or being so drunk because they drank too much wine and now in that state, they're coming to the communion table. Paul says, you call that the Lord's Supper? Trust me, that is not the Lord's Supper that you're participating in and, and trying to uh, live out. He says, it's everything else but the Lord's Supper. So he's got to correct them with this letter. So that's the problem. They're not taking the Lord's Supper with reverence. Now, what's the solution? Let's read on a little bit more back here in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 11. He told them what they were doing wrong. But he continues on. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So before you go back to the table, understand what these symbols represent. They're very important. They're vital for our salvation. We remember that Jesus died on the cross for us personally. And when we partake of those symbols, the bread and the wine, we remember what he did for us. We remember now that we belong to him. We remember that he actually dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. Amen. So when we ingest the bread and the, and the drink, it reminds us that, yeah, Jesus is dwelling in us. His light is shining in each of our lives on a daily basis. So it's not just bread and wine. We hold these symbols in high esteem. You know, we have a lot of symbols in our lives. You know, for example, my wedding ring. It's a piece of metal, okay? There's gold in it. And I've worn this ring now close to 41 years. But it's not just a piece of metal. It's probably worth something if I were to trade it in but it's what this ring represents. It represents the love that I have for my wife and that she has for me. It, it's a symbol of the commitment that we made and have carried out now for almost 41 years. It's more than just a ring. It's more than just a piece of metal. It represents something that's very precious to us. You know, another example is the American flag. It's a piece of cloth, right? It's cloth. But it's more than cloth. Because when you look at the American flag, it represents something that is very precious to all of us. It represents the life that we enjoy in this country. It represents the freedom that we have in this country compared to a lot of other countries in the world. 
It represents those who lived and died to maintain those freedoms for us. So, you know, we went through an era in our country back in the 60s and 70s maybe, where a lot of the, the people who wanted to rebel somehow in their life <clears throat> would actually burn the American flag. It was just a piece of cloth, but no, it was more than that. And we all got upset when we saw that happening because we realized how precious that flag is for what it represents. I don't know if you saw it, it was on the news this past week, but you know, a lot of people have uh, cameras at their front door now, but the doorbell. So when somebody rings your doorbell, you can actually see and speak to whoever's there. But there was a video on TV on the news this past week that I saw. Uh, somebody sent it in. It was a video from this person's front door camera. And what had happened, they had a flag on a pole outside their uh, front door. And somehow the flag had fallen and it was laying on the ground. And a FedEx truck, you can see it through the video, a FedEx truck was driving by and it stopped right in front of their house. And the driver got out, came up, picked up the flag and folded it up in the proper way and put it on the chair or the table on their front porch. Because he saw the American flag on the ground, which it should never be on the ground because of what it represents. And he had the, <clears throat> the courage and the honor, the respect for the flag that he went out of his way to stop and pick that flag up and handle it in the proper way. And that's really inspiring to see that. And that's why when we go to a sporting event and they play the national anthem, we all stand up. And we all take off our hats because we know what that flag represents and we honor it. Such is the case with the symbols back at the, at the table. It's a piece of bread and a little cup, either grape juice or wine. It's not much, but it's what it represents. So when we go back there, we handle it in the proper way. We prepare ourselves in the proper way before we go back there and partake of those symbols because we know what it represents. It represents the very broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, which he did for us and for the whole world. And that's a powerful uh, meaning for that. So we know that we should go back and take that because we're being reminded of what he went through for us. We're reminded that we're now living under the new covenant. We're reminded that our sins are forgiven. And we just not only rejoice in that, but we show great respect and honor for that as well. <clears throat> and to, to go back there and to take it without that knowledge and without that kind of preparation would be an offense to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that's what the church at Corinth was doing. You know, the people who were drunk were kind of staggering back to the table. And Paul said, you guys got to be out of your mind. How can you treat such important, powerful symbols with such disrespect? And he goes on to say that there's a penalty in the lives of some people for doing that. <clears throat> Verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Notice this. A man ought to, or a woman, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, 
and a number of you have fallen asleep, meaning died. But if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So he talks about examining yourself. And by the way, that's the title of this sermon. Examine yourself. So I don't know about you, but we know that we have the communion service once a month. And I look forward to that. I anticipate that. And I prepare myself for that. And if you don't quite know how to do that, well, ask God's help. And basically what we want to do is, knowing that we're forgiven, we as Christians all live in a state of forgiveness. What a remarkable thing that is. Amen. So when we come before uh, the communion table and we're about to take the cup and the wine, and maybe you don't just do it like now as we're minutes away from the communion, but maybe even the night before. You know, as uh, the day before church winds down Saturday night, Saturday night, you start thinking, well, you know, tomorrow is the communion service. And I want to make sure that I prepare for that in the right way, that I examine myself. So, Lord, I know that I'm forgiven of my sins, but I never want to take sin for granted. I know that it upsets you and it actually caused the death of Jesus Christ. You know, if I were the only person to ever live on this world, he would have died for me personally. That's the way you have to look at it. So, Lord, I never want to take my sins for granted, and I just want to take a few moments now and repent. You know, as I think over this last month, maybe the last time since we had communion, uh, I'm sure I've done a lot of things wrong, maybe certain things I can even remember explicitly having done wrong. Maybe I was nasty toward my wife, or maybe I got really angry in traffic when that guy cut me off and I shook my fist at him or did, did something else, had nasty thoughts about them. Lord, please forgive me for those things. I know as a Christian I shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. You're in the process of transforming me into something better. You're transforming me into the very likeness of Jesus Christ himself. And I'm sorry I got in the way of that process and I really screwed up. I did something I shouldn't have done and I want you to know I'm sorry. I also know I'm forgiven. But Lord, I never want to take sin for granted. I never just want to let it go and, and get used to it. You have called me to something different. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. <clears throat> the epistle of, of Paul to Titus. It's right after Timothy. Titus 2 verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. You know, we're recipients of God's grace, and we're forever thankful for that. We're saved not by our works, but saved as a free gift from God. Grace. For the grace of God, this is Titus 2, 11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us, notice, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our Lord, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Notice, eager to do what is good. And also, he has given us the ability now, through the Holy Spirit, to say no to sin. Never take sin for granted. You know, grace is a wonderful message. Undeserved pardon that God has given us. Sometimes we just get comfortable with our sins. Instead of rooting these things out of our lives, we get comfortable with them. And we find ourselves hanging on to certain things and practices and habits. And we think, well, we're forgiven, so we don't really need to work that hard. No. Correction. He has given us His grace and His Spirit so that we now have the ability to say no to ungodliness. So what is it in our lives that maybe we have grown accustomed to? We kind of know that it's wrong. We have a hint that it's wrong. We shouldn't be living that way, but, you know, we think, well, we're forgiven. And God is going to overlook all of that. Well, you know what? God's grace does overlook sin. It forgives sin. But there was a price to be paid for that to happen. So we need to examine ourselves. Let's take a look at at the things in our lives that we've become too comfortable with. And instead of saying no to them, we're saying, well, we're forgiven, so maybe it's okay to keep doing that. No. The grace that we've been given is not a cheap grace. It's free, but it's not cheap. A terrible price had to be paid for us to have it available to us, and that's the death of Jesus Christ. So as we go back to the table, we need to prepare ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. And you know what? Your examination of yourself is going to be different from my examination of myself and your examination of yourself. Because you've got your life. I've got mine. You've got yours. What is it about you that maybe you've grown to be too comfortable with? What is it about you that you need to say no to? Now, God doesn't expect us to be perfect as we come back to the table. But he he expects us to prepare for this, to repent for what we have done with the assurance that we're forgiven. But God never wants us to become comfortable with sin. And that's part of the self-examination. That's the solution to the problem, as Paul was explaining to the church at Corinth. Don't keep coming to the Lord's Supper with this attitude and this frame of mind. You're causing division, you're causing disunity, and you're showing disrespect for the symbols God invites you to participate in. So, what is it about you? You know, we're an open book before God. It's not like you're hiding anything from Him. You can't hide sin from God. He's watching you on a 24-hour basis, seven days a week. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. But He wants you to come before Him with respect and honor and just be open with Him and say, Lord, you know that I struggle with this. Or, Lord, you know what I did last week or uh, the mistakes that I've made, the sins that I've committed. He wants you to be open with him, to continue to have a repentant attitude with the assurance that you're forgiven. Then you're coming back to the table with honor and respect. 
That's what Paul is trying to convey to the church at Corinth. It does not mean examining yourself to determine if you're worthy to go back to that table, because none of us is worthy. Now, thanks be to God, he has made us worthy through Jesus Christ. So don't think, oh, you know, I, I messed up so much, I, I don't dare go back there. I, I feel like a hypocrite and a loser. No, you go back there as long as you prepare in advance. You know you're not perfect. God knows you're not perfect. None of us are worthy of God's grace. It's about coming in an unworthy manner that he's trying to correct. So be mindful of your sins. Come with a repentant attitude. The Lord's Supper is a visible reminder that our sins are forgiven. Amen. So like I said, our life should include preparation time. You know, sometimes when we have church services and you get here and you think, oh yeah, there's going to be an offering today. Uh, let me take a quick look in my wallet and see what I, oh, I spent the last of my money on groceries. I really don't have anything to put in there. You know, we always prepare our offering the night before church. So we've got it prepared and ready to go. We seal up the envelope. There it is on the desk, ready for church tomorrow. It's the same thing about communion. It's not something you, you arrive in here, oh, there's communion today, I forgot all about that. No, you anticipate it. You prepare for it. You examine yourself so that when you come to church, in God's eyes, you should be there Amen. and you should participate. So you might want to offer up just a, a brief prayer in your own minds. Take a few moments to think about your life and some of the things that you're str still struggling with. And we'll have a prayer in, in just a moment or so. But it's got to be a personal thing, not just a congregational thing. We do it as a congregation, but it's got to be real to you. And, uh, you know, God uses this opportunity to, you know, he's kind of like the great physician. He knows what's sick about us still, what he's trying to root out of our lives, what he's trying to correct. And he's going to continue to, to do that. And he's got a way of uh, probing. I always hate to go to the dentist. You know, we go on a regular basis. Once every six months, we go in for a checkup. And these dental hygienists, they, they could have been torture people back in the Middle Ages. You know, they've got their metal tools and real pointy things that they stick in your mouth. And sometimes if you had a problem with something, your gums or a particular tooth, and they take that real sharp object and probe, they kind of poke at it. and yeah, That hurts. I feel that. God's like that sometimes. You know, it says that his word is like a double-edged sword that pierces deeply into us. So God is going to probe just like a dentist or a doctor would do. And he knows the tender spots in our lives. He knows the things that we're struggling with. He knows the things that he's trying to fix in your life that sometimes you want to not let him deal with that because you've become too comfortable with it. Well, God's going to continue to probe those things. And he's going to do whatever he has to do to make you mindful of them. Not only mindful and aware of them, but especially the need to change. Amen. So we need to open ourselves up to God to let him as the great physician do his probing. And when he touches a, a point in our lives that really hurts and is very tender, 
We need to let him do his healing there. He's already done the work through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But let's make sure that we don't get in the way and keep him from bringing those changes about. We have to be open and honest with God and to admit, yes, there is a problem there. I do struggle with that. But Lord, with you, all things are possible. So bring about that healing and bring about that change. I want to be the kind of person you want me to be. So let's have a prayer now. Lord, as we just heard from this letter in Corinth, we need to approach that table in the proper way, with respect and with honor. And we know a lot had to happen for this table to be made available for us. Jesus established it at the Last Supper, but then he went ahead to die on the cross, which made it possible for us all to participate in it, to be recipients of your grace, to be recipients of your forgiveness. We rejoice in that, we celebrate that, but at the same time, we want to come back to the table honorably. So do your work in each of our lives. Do the probing and make sure you point out to us and remind us of the things that have to be changed. Help us to respond to your probing. And when you touch those sensitive spots, remind us that we can't just comfortably take these things in with us to the kingdom, that you're in the process of changing and transforming us. And allow us to let you do that work in our lives. Not to hide it, not to pretend that it isn't there, but to really put forth the effort on our part to say no to these things. Anything that is ungodly in our lives, Lord, do your work and let us respond in the right way. But thank you, Lord Jesus, for uh, making this possible for us, reminding us who we are in, in you, God's children, that we're forgiven, and that we have eternal life to look forward to. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll have the crew go back.